So today marks the end of a a five-sermon series I've been working on this summer. And uh, just in case you haven't been here to hear all four other sermons, where have you been? Don't give me the excuse that you were living in another town when I started it. Nothing. (laughs) Glad to have you. Let me just give you kind of a refresher of what we've been talking about. The first sermon, we talked about the text where uh, the woman comes and anoints Jesus' feet with the perfume and dries the feet with her hair. And the Pharisees raise an objection to Jesus saying, if this man were truly a prophet, he would know what kind of woman this is. And that phrase, what kind of woman, was kind of where I've been jumping off and talking a lot about about this idea of, uh, that's how a lot of us deal with conflict or deal with people that we dislike. We think of them as that kind of person. A kind of person we can't trust, a kind of person who we put out of our lives. And we use the metaphor of boxes. We say sometimes when we disagree with someone and we find them irritating or aggravating, we just put them in a box and we put them out of our lives. We know what kind of people they are and they don't deserve our allegiance or our affection or our attention. So I hadn't intended to preach a whole series on this, but then after I preached it, I thought it was pretty good. But then I thought, well, how, how, do, you, how do you do this? And so we've been talking about different strategies that you can use to become that kind of person who truly treats other people like Jesus does. How do we avoid putting people in boxes? What can we do so that when the time comes, we don't do that? And so we talked about gratitude one week. We said by consciously practicing gratitude, we become more able to embrace and receive other people into our lives. We talked about practicing a rhythm of feasting and fasting. We said when we practice a rhythm of feasting and fasting, we learn to control our appetites and we learn to uh, not always need other people to fulfill our needs. We become able to give ourselves away to other people. Last week, we talked about the Good Samaritan and we talked about opening our eyes to human suffering. We know that we can't meet every need that people have in the world, but we need to be aware of how people are suffering and to not close our eyes to it. So that we can be more ready when we have a place where we can jump in and help. We're more ready to do that. We're less scared of of suffering. And so today I want to focus on one final uh, strategy that you can use. And that's embracing the blessings of community and solitude. Embracing the blessings of community and solitude. There is a phrase that many more liturgical Christian churches use in a service of baptism. Uh, It's a phrase that was used when I was an intern at a United Methodist Church. It was a phrase that they used. And it kind of goes up the Anglican tradition. It's used in several other uh, more liturgical churches as well. There's a time in the service of baptism in such churches for the congregation to renew their baptismal vows. To sort of remember what it was like to be baptized and then commit themselves to living that kind of life anew. And a phrase that such churches use at that point in the service is the phrase, remember your baptism and be thankful. Remember your baptism and be thankful. Remember a time when this was all new to you, a time when everything seemed possible, a time when you and Jesus were just beginning your journey together. Remember what that was like and be thankful. Do you remember your baptism? 
Some of you were baptized as babies, and so maybe there's not a a physical remembrance of it, but maybe a a spiritual memory almost. I was baptized as a nine-year-old, and I remember my baptism well. I remember that I was very, very nervous about the choice to get baptized. I was kind of a... This will sound too strong, but I was sort of a spiritually tormented kid. Don't read too much into that. I don't think I was possessed. But I certainly had this idea all the time, this keen idea, I needed to do what God wanted me to do. I just had to do it. And, and it was so hard figuring out what it was that God wanted me to do in every, every given, any given moment. But I was just so determined to do so. So I was absolutely, positively wanted to follow God. And in my Baptist church, that meant baptism. But I was absolutely terrified of being baptized. I was terrified of the kind of spiritual ramifications of it. And I was scared of water in general. I didn't like water. I I was scared of feeling so vulnerable in front of all these adults that I knew and respected. And I was scared of, of jumping in without knowing what I was getting into. When I say jumping in, I don't mean literally jumping in. We were Baptists. We didn't go that far. But, but you know what I'm saying. I was afraid of sort of starting the spiritual life in a new, a new way, and I didn't know exactly what I was getting into. So I was scared to death of being baptized, and I was scared to death of not getting baptized. And that's what I was like when I was nine, if that gives you any hints of, of what I was like then. But after, after that difficult decision was made, and the baptism was had, There was a party, a huge party. And I remember people coming over to visit, my pastor and his family and and all my grandparents and and a few cousins thrown in for good measure. And I remember just this big party we had. I remember a gift that I got from my pastor. It was a copy of Unger's Bible Handbook. Does anyone have Unger's Bible Handbook out there? I didn't understand it when I was nine, but it was what they gave to everybody who was baptized. And, And inside that, he wrote something to the effect of, I had challenged him greatly, which is something people have been saying to me ever since. You know, you're a challenging young man. And something like that. And I remember, I remember more mundane things. I remember that my mom let me choose two kinds of dessert for the party. And I, I don't remember what the one was, but I remember that the other was something called lemon lush, which is not nearly as scandalous as it sounds, but it was, it was a kind of a mud pie made with lemon pudding instead of chocolate pudding. I hadn't had lemon lush again until I came to Houghton and Kim Cockle made it for a, an event at, our pre, at a Grace's kindergarten. And I thought, I'm right back to being nine. I'm right back to being baptized, eating that lemon lush. I remember those things. I remember them up here. I remember them down here. And I'm thankful. On that day, I did grow up in a sense. Right? It probably was the first time that I had made a decision more or less on my own about my faith. And, and I, I left the baptism and I left the party feeling like I was surrounded by people who loved me. By people who would support me on this new journey with Jesus that I had chosen to take. And I was thankful. Now, I, I bring this story up because part of our text this morning is the baptism of Jesus. And it's an intense scene. I mean, you know, I thought my baptism was intense, but but Jesus' baptism is really intense. As Jesus is coming out of the water, we read that the heavens were torn open. Sometimes we skip right ahead to what the voice says and what the dove, but just picture the heavens being torn open. And the Holy Spirit descends from heaven on Jesus, and there's a voice from heaven, and the voice says, You are my son. 
I love you. I'm happy with you. Mark tells us the story for lots of reasons. One of them, I think, is so that we'll know that even at this early stage in his ministry, Jesus was specially anointed by God. But I think in another way, the story of the voice and the dove and the heavens tearing open served the same purpose for Jesus that my little baptism served for me. It was a time when everything was clear. God was there. Other supportive people were there. And Jesus saw very clearly the kind of life he was to have and the kind of person he was to be. He was God's son. I don't want to overstate it because I know that Jesus always had a sense of being God's son. But there certainly is also a theme within the scriptures that Jesus came to an awareness of who he was as he was growing. He learned and he grew like the rest of us. And in that moment, I don't doubt, but that Jesus understood very, very clearly who he was. Whatever else was going to happen to him along the way, and however much of it he knew then, I'm not sure. But that revelation on that great day, you are my son, I love you, I'm happy with you, that colored the rest of his life, the rest of his ministry. On the days that we were baptized, both Jesus and I saw life clearly, crystal clear. This is who I am. This is what I have to do now. Now, I was baptized when I was nine, and that was 25 years ago, so you can do math. And things have not always been so clear. Things have not always flowed smoothly since then. Like a lot of people, I've gone through many different ideas, many different changes in my life, many different changes in my sense of self and who I am, what I'm called to do. I've gone through periods in my life where I have followed Jesus intently. And I've gone through periods in my life where I wish I had followed Jesus more intently than I have. And I've gone through periods in my life where I thought I was following Jesus intently, but I wasn't. It's been confusing. There have been times in my life where I I thought I I wanted to be an elementary school teacher, where I I wanted to be a history teacher, where I wanted to be a a pastor, where I wanted to be a stay-at-home dad, where I wanted to be a a professor of Hebrew Bible, where I wanted to be a campus minister, where I wanted to be a sports writer, and on and on and on. And, And all through my life, all throughout that journey, there have been different churches and different Christian communities that have come alongside of me and helped me to discern and understand myself better so that I can serve God better. Those of you who know me well know that this is a huge uh, pillar in the way that I understand the Christian life. It is not a solo project. We need each other. I can't fully understand me and my vocation unless I know you and let you speak into my life what you see in me. We have this kind of vision sometimes as Americans. We are rugged individuals. No one knows me better than me. Who are you to tell me something about myself when I know my own truth? We have that kind of vision. And the Christian church, at least in my way of understanding the Christian calling, is entirely opposed to that. Who knows me better than me? You do, through God. That's not to say you know everything about me. It's that you can see things in me that I'm blind to in myself. That's part of what it, what it means when I, I call you sacraments sometimes, when we talk about the gathering of the people as, a, as the first sacrament of God. Right? When you're together, when we're together, we speak the word of God to each other and we reflect something of, of God to each other so that we can all grow. 
And I can say that out loud, but if deep down I think I know my own truth, I don't really believe it. I can't be me if I don't know you and allow you to speak to me. I can't be Christ unless I belong to his body. And I rely on you a lot to help me understand what God's called me to be. And likewise, I hope you have something in your interaction with me that helps you see and understand yourself more clearly. That's why we preach, right? Not just to pour knowledge into your heads, but so that you leave thinking differently about yourself than when you came in. Now, I say all that. But while that support that I've had from my communities, the Baptist church I grew up in, the Methodist churches I interned in, the Baptist church I pastored, now you all, I've, I've received support from you. But, but truth be told, there is something that even with your support, there is something about the clarity of that initial day, the clarity of my baptism that you all can't give me. I love you. But I need something more than you to have a healthy spiritual life so I can see myself and you for what I am and what we are. And it seems to me that even Jesus needed something like this. Because immediately after his baptism, look at what happens. We read that the Spirit of God drove Jesus out into the wilderness. The language is not soft here. The Spirit did not invite Jesus out to the wilderness. The Spirit did not beckon him out to the wilderness. The Spirit did not sit down with Jesus and chat about why coming into the wilderness might be a good idea after all. The Spirit drove him out into the wilderness. The the Greek, in fact, I won't get all Greeky, but but the Greek has two ideas in the word. One is the word balo, which we have our word ball, means throw. Throw like a girl, sorry, but... Right, we, that means throw. The other part, ek, means out. The Spirit threw Jesus out into the wilderness. And there, in the wilderness, he stayed for 40 days and he was subjected to terrifying things. Temptation by Satan. Physical vulnerability to the wild beasts. And we read that angels ministered to him and waited on him. What does this mean? Well, in our day... We can afford to enjoy the wilderness and maybe even romanticize it a little bit. Why can we do that? Because we've built roads into the wilderness, which means we can drive there and drive out when we're done with the wilderness. Right? We've built camping gear. We've made camping gear, which helps us to, to walk into the wilderness and spend the night there if we want. But we're pretty assured that we can still have some of the comforts that we need to be comfortable in the wilderness. We even have things like nice shoes. Not me, but we have nice shoes to hike around the wilderness so that we can enjoy it without hurting our feet. The wilderness for us has become a place of renewal, a place of refreshment. It's even part of the reason why Jill and I decided to leave our last church and to come here was a sense of where we were before was so suburban, so concrete. We just wanted to be in a place that was a little closer to trees and plants and green things. So this is legitimate, but that's how we think about the wilderness today. But that's not how the readers of this gospel would have understood the wilderness. The wilderness to the ancient mind was a terrifying place. A place beyond the bounds of civilization. a, A place where nature was in charge and people were not. It was a place of chaos instead of order. 
It was a place with its own rules and laws that were not mitigated at all by human kindness, by human sensibilities. Going into the wilderness meant being subjected to an entirely different way of living. One that human frailty was not well suited for. It's for this reason that people thought John the Baptist was weird. He lived out in the wilderness and he lived according to its laws and its wisdom. And it's for this reason that the Spirit of God had to drive Jesus out there for 40 days of solitude, temptation, and vulnerability. We might not have an appreciation for what the wilderness meant to the ancient mind as as far as a place of physical terror. But I think we can all appreciate the terror of being alone. Now, this is harder for some of us than others. I'm an extrovert. You probably gathered that about me by this point. And that means I, not just that I like to talk a lot, although that's true too, but it means that I draw my energy from interactions with other people. So I enjoy, right now, I'm getting filled up just by talking to you. And when I meet one-on-one with people in my office, I'm just getting filled up. I love it. So it's very hard for me to consider being alone for 40 days. That's terrifying for me on a personality level. Now, Jill is an introvert. My wife, Jill, is an introvert, and she, I don't think, would like the thought of being alone for 40 days, perhaps, but it doesn't fill her with the same abject terror that it fills me with. But there's something, I think, even deeper than the level of personality going on here. There's a way in which all of us, introvert and extrovert alike, draw our understanding of who we are from our place in human society. Right? Jill might not necessarily sort of enjoy this kind of sitting around and talking with one person, but, but she has her place in human society, and that means something to her. Jill is a professor of mathematics at Houghton College. I say that just to, to bring out, just think about what that means. Think about these words. Professor, mathematics, Houghton, college. All four of those words only mean anything... Because we live within a specific society that helps us to understand what those words mean and help us to understand who we are. Professor means someone who has, uh, you know, mastered a certain field, has gained expertise in a certain field, and is charged with passing that on to other people. Mathematics has a definition, and I don't know how to define math exactly, but we know that it's only because people have sat down and figured out uh, its laws, these interesting laws about how numbers and quantities and shapes work together, It's only because people have done that that we have a meaning for that word. Houghton. Consider what Houghton means. For us, it carries a a whole host of connotations. We have memories and histories and friends and family here in, in Houghton. But there was a day in which this plot of ground was not called Houghton. If the Lord tarries, there may be a day when this plot of ground is no longer called Houghton. It means something because it means something to us. And college is the same way. What's a college? Well, it's a place where 17 to 22-year-olds come to to learn about a specific field, to, to gain insights in a certain field, major in one of them so they understand it well, and be ready to go and contribute to society in a meaningful way. That's what college means. All four of those things, professor, mathematics, Houghton, and college, all have meanings, but we only understand them because of the society that we live in. So when I say Jill is a professor of mathematics at Houghton College, you get a mental picture of who Jill is and what she means in this place. 
You can draw a mental picture of how she fits. And there's a real comfort for this, even for an introvert. To know where you fit. But without a society, you have no professors. You have no Houghton. You have no college. And maybe you have no mathematics. I went kind of back and forth about that one. And we'll leave that philosophical discussion for another time. But you don't have these things in the same way if you don't have a society. And that's what it means for Jesus to go out into the wilderness. Having had this high moment, he doesn't just go off into the wilderness for 40 days for a breather. And he doesn't go out there sword drawn to conquer Satan. He has this high moment where supportive people and God himself were right there saying, this is who you are. We love you. We support you. And immediately, the Spirit strips him of those roles and throws him out into the wilderness. Where to the jackals, he didn't appear to be the son of God. He didn't appear to be beloved at all. He didn't appear to be supported at all. He appeared to be just another vulnerable piece of scared human meat. That's what he looked like. In the wilderness. And that's what the wilderness means. Choosing to let go of all human roles. All the places where we fit. All those roles and titles that give us meaning. Choosing to be there. Vulnerable. Naked before God. That's what it means to be in the wilderness. Well, why on earth does the Spirit drive Jesus there? It's hard to say. I mean, when you read the Mark's, uh, Mark's account of it, Mark was probably the first gospel written. And when you read it, you just think, well, what, what does it mean? Why, why did he get thrown out there? And I just imagine the initial readers reading it and thinking, what, why? And then, of course, Matthew and Luke come along a little later. And they fill in the story for us a little bit. And that's another sermon for another time. But here it's so stark and so bare. I can only conclude that Mark includes it because he wants us to understand it as being an essential story to get Jesus ready for his ministry. Right? The temptation, the enforced solitude of the wilderness makes him come to grips with his calling. The baptism has these divine overtones throughout, right? The tearing open of the heavens, the spirit coming, the voice. But the wilderness reminds Jesus that he is a man as well. For 40 days, he's dependent completely on God for his survival. And the only reason he survives these 40 days is the fact that God continually sends angels. And he discovers that God, in that place, he discovers that God has given him the power to fight off the temptation of Satan. He learns something about himself that he could not learn as easily while he was in society. Surrounded by people. He learns, on the one hand, what it means to be human and truly weak. And on the other hand, he learns about the strength that God has given him. That means he cannot be touched. The lessons of the wilderness can't be learned anywhere else. Well, I get very convicted when I read this passage because solitude is so hard for me. I love the community, as I alluded to before, that's so central to how I understand the Christian life. I I love the community so much that it's hard for me to remember that there are lessons I have to learn in the wilderness. There are lessons I have to learn on my own. When I come right down to it, it's fear. I fear losing the roles that God has called me to because I'm so confident when I'm with you that God has called me to those roles. 
I fear being alone because I, I fear what it means to just be me. I, and I fear that my spirituality is, is tissue paper thin and that solitude will reveal that. I, I fear that my theology is weak and that solitude will reveal that. I, I fear that my heart is impure and solitude will reveal that. When I'm alone, I fear that I'm going to see these things in this unflinching, bright light and that I will hate myself for it, for who I really am. When I'm alone, I fear that I will not see the power of God in the same powerful way that Jesus did. I'm afraid that I'll be revealed as a sham and a phony. And I care so much about having a place to fit, like I say, a place to fit in society. That I fear that when I'm alone, I won't be missed. And that when I come back, people will have found someone else to do better what I do now. We avoid solitude for reasons far deeper than mere personality issues. But look here, look at the promise of solitude. Look at Jesus emerge from solitude. And he is a man on a mission. Literally, he knows exactly who he is. He knows exactly why he is here. And he begins to proclaim a unique insightful, compelling, revolutionary understanding of the kingdom of God. The kingdom has come near in me, he says, repent, believe the good news. We've all been around preachers and other people who speak without conviction. And then we've been around people who speak deep, authentic messages with conviction. And this is a man who has learned the lessons of community and the lessons of solitude. And a conviction is a result of that. This is a man who has heard a divine voice while he was in the midst of community and then immediately got thrown out into the wilderness and had those lessons seared into him by 40 days of solitude. And as a result, this is a man who knows what he is up here, but he knows who he is here. This is a man who's equipped to bring the news as no other man before and no other man since. And remarkably... This is a man who is now capable of seeing other people as they really are, with divine eyes. Look at him approach Peter and Andrew, ordinary fishermen. And he says, you know, so far you have seen your life as as one of bringing fish out of the water on the land and, and to eat them. But now I have something greater for you. Fish for people. Bring them from death into life. In the next verses, he he sees James and John, also fishermen, and they're just spending an ordinary day mending their nets. And in them, too, he sees miraculously, not just fishermen, but apostles. And he says, come, follow me. And they just drop their nets and they go. And throughout my summer preaching, I've been talking about how do we view people, even people that we disagree with, like Jesus did, not as less than they are, but as more than they know they are. How can we see people as real, living, breathing, complex human beings with divine purpose, with more potential than they can see in themselves? And this is exactly what Jesus is doing. He looks at these guys and says, these guys would make ideal disciples. These are people you and I would pass on the street without a second thought. And he says, these are disciples. They would make ideal pillars in the kingdom of God that's coming in. He sees potential in Peter, Andrew, James, and John that they could never see in themselves. And part of that, let's be fair, is because he's God. 
But part of that is because he's learned the lessons of community and solitude. Having heard the voice of God in community, having heard the voice of God in solitude, he comes back with a confident, powerful sense of himself and his vocation, which makes him able to see other people as they really are as well. Sometimes when people ask about Jesus' baptism, they say, why did he do it? Why? I mean, why bother getting baptized if you're not going to sin, right? There's no reason for Jesus to be baptized if by reason you mean that he had to do it to please God somehow. He doesn't have to do it. He's baptized because it's important for him to submit to the community expectations of his day. God didn't come to earth pretending to be a first century Jew. He came to the world as a first century Jew. And he had to embrace the community while at the same time prophetically critiquing it. But at the same time, even as he was a first century Jew, there is something unique, timeless, untouchable about the man. A detachment from the need to be affirmed. A complete absence of anxiety. An ability to absorb the suffering of the world without giving it back. That comes from solitude. And so it's these two realities, the tension that, that he had a people to call his own, a home to go to, and at the same time, no need of a home, no need for that sort of affirmation. And living those two things out in tension made him able to give himself away and to see others, uh, see the best in others, see them as they were. And so for us to do the same, we also need to be acquainted with those two lessons, community and solitude. When we're confident that this congregation is our home, that, that, that here there are people who will speak the word of God to us, that people here will see the best in me, and, and that here is a safe place for me to be me as I am now, and also to not cling to who I understand myself to be, to always be willing to change because what if I hear and see of God in you and in each other? When we have that kind of home, When this place is really a sanctuary, well, we can leave this sanctuary with complete confidence. Why? We have a sanctuary to come back to. We know that we've experienced God with each other, and we're going to do it again. So we can go confident. But sometimes we have to let go of all the titles this world gives us, and even the titles and callings that we give each other. To remind ourselves that our strength ultimately comes from God alone. When we experience the gift of community and the gift of solitude, the result for us is just the same as the result for Jesus. It's a confident recognition that we can go into the world bringing good news. And part of that good news is that we can look at other people and see not just fishermen but apostles. That we can see not just employees, but kings and queens. That that we can see not just students, but prophets. That we can see not just college professors, but saints. That we can see more in people than they can see in themselves. And when we see that, we invite them to join in this amazing job. In this amazing life that God has given us to bring in the kingdom with him. Let's pray. God, it's probably among us there are people for whom the first part of the sermon is scary and people for whom the second part is scary. For some of us, it's difficult to imagine giving ourselves completely to the community to which we belong. 
Like I say, God, we have an idea of who we are as Americans. We're rugged. We're individual. We know ourselves better than anyone else. It can be scary to yield ourselves to a body. To, to be receptive to the words that we hear from each other. It can be scary. And for some of us, God, quite the reverse is true. We're afraid of being alone. We're afraid of being away from a body. We're afraid of what might happen if we follow you into the wilderness. If we let go of all those things that we've achieved and done in our lives simply to be ourselves before you, just as we are. God, we pray that you would give us strength for the one that's difficult for us. For those who fear the community, God, give them a good experience with this place. Help them to hear the word of the Lord from someone and receive it unto themselves. To see the gift that you've given in helping us to to think about each other in different ways. And for those of us who fear being alone, God, reassure us that you are in the wilderness. Though it seems to not make sense to us, though it seems to be dominated not by those things that uh, mean anything to people, but by a whole different set of rules, God, help us to know that you are there and that we can follow you there without fear. We pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen.